0: The Jews said to him, "It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death." This was to fulfil the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, "Are you the King of the Jews?" Jesus answered, "Do you say this of your own accord, or did the others say this to uh, say it to you about me?" Pilate answered, "Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done?" Jesus answered. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber.
1: One of the things I say to people who speak publicly, especially people who preach, is uh, it's a really good idea to know your audience, know your people, and uh, make sure that you aim whatever you're speaking to your people, right? which is a Good idea in theory. The big problem with it is uh, I actually don't know precisely where you're at. I don't know what's happening at a heart level for you. I don't know what your week's been like. And so in one sense, there's something probably that's achievable for a preacher, but in a whole other sense, most of it's impossible for me, to be honest. Um, and uh, you have probably heard that uh, phrase, uh, something's an inside job. Well, it has to be an inside job. It has to be an inside job every Sunday, and that's probably the greatest Um, Hope that I have, whenever I speak, is that uh, God will do an inside job on the inside of you. He'll actually work inside of you, and hopefully you get to hear what He wants you to hear, and hopefully some of that comes from me. Uh, One of the weird things as a preacher is uh, you can preach, and people come up and say something they got out of it, and you just kind of go (laughs) like, "You never said it." You know, I I never said that, but hey, that's really good. All right, now either I had an out-of-body experience, or they had an inside job going on inside of him, which is uh, really good. So I'm just going to pray uh, for that inside job um, and ask God to help you and me. Jesus, please help me to uh, fit in well with what you want to do today. It's today's. it's about you. Every day is about you. And uh, it's not about us. It's not about what we can get out of it. It's not about how you can be our servant. It's about how We can just join up with you in whatever you're doing. And the truth is today, God, that everywhere across the face of the planet, right here in this hall and everywhere else, you're active and you're busy and you're doing things. You are doing things. And there's no place anywhere that is outside of your activity. And so we just ask you today to be active today. And I ask on behalf of everyone sitting here today that you'd be active inside of them so that they would hear what you want to say to them. And I pray that you'd bring... Comfort to those who need comfort, and challenge to those who need challenge, and inspiration to those who need inspiration, so that we are different. And that is the purpose of your word, and that is the purpose of every time that you talk to us, uh, you talk to us so that we would be different, so we would change, so that we would be redeemed, so that we would be more fully who we really are. And I pray that today, Lord, I pray that for all of us today, that we'd take another little incremental step toward getting closer to being who you really made us to be. And uh, Lord, that we'd just get a little bit closer to us shining like the sun, which is what you said you're going to do with us, Jesus, those who love you. You're going to make us shine like the sun. And uh, I pray that you'd help us to do that, help us to have soft hearts and help us to uh, welcome your uh, word, what you say to us, and uh, welcome it washing over us uh, at a deep level. Amen. Good. Uh, hey, look, we've, uh, I've been doing a, a mini-series, and it's very unlike a TV mini-series. Maybe for you it is like a TV mini-series. It doesn't go anywhere, but hopefully it's not, because I've been working hard to make sure it does go somewhere over the last little bit. But we've just been doing some stuff on redemption. And uh, I, I preached about redemption uh, well, three weeks ago, three Sundays ago today and um, basically talked about God's overall plan is that he wants to make new th- old things, corrupted things, tepid things new. He wants to freshen them. And in a sense, he actually wants to make all of us, as I prayed, he wants to make all of us more fully who we are than what we've ever been. And um, that is a really exciting thing, because what we actually see in our world is things get trashed all the time we get trashed, we trash other people, we corrupt other people. Things happen to us that trash us and hurt us. And God's plan is to bring about redemption and to bring about wholeness and to bring about freshness, which is the Revelation 22 comment where uh, God says, Behold, I'm making all things new. And the Greek word uh, behind that, it can have the connotation of fresh. I'm making everything fresh. Because in this world, everything gets tired and it wears out. And things disappear and people die sometimes, don't they? But God's plan is to bring about freshness and redemption to people. And that means that absolutely everything we do, like honestly, if we really believe this and we, we knew it the way that God revealed it, you'd be, you wouldn't be sitting there like that probably. Maybe on the inside you're jumping, all right? You're one of these people that dances on the inside, not on the outside, all right? But this is amazing. This is really, really amazing that this is God's plan to make things fresh and new again. And, uh, man, it's good stuff. But, see, what we actually find is there are roadblocks that get in the way of God's redemption. They, they become a barrier and stop God, in a sense, from doing what he wants to do. And one of those we dealt with last week, and that was self-justification. Well, While you justify yourself and uh, work really, really hard to convince everyone else that you're publicly righteous, you're making all these public statements of, I'm right, and I'm perfect, and I'm okay... God doesn't get the opportunity to come in and justify you. Give way to him and he'll come in and he'll justify you. So today, we're just going to have a look at three men out of John chapter 18. Well, not all men. One, one group is a group of men, the, the Jews, but it, it doesn't work. One group of men and then two other men. So I just said three men. Are you cool with that? Yeah. Three men that teach us about how to block redemption. And then at the end, we're going to look at three women. That, three women that get redemption. Uh, pretty full on stuff. What a classic line at the end there uh, that they say, it's easy to miss something you're not looking for. And what you have actually got in uh, John chapter 18, 28 to 40 is you've actually got three groups of people, you've got three lots of men who actually have truth, Jesus truth standing right in front of them and they miss him. All right. And as a result, they miss the redemption and the change that he wants to bring about in their lives. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're just looking at the three guys. So if you've got your Bible, this will come, it'll come in really handy. All right. Uh, down the track, we're going to do a little bit more of this kind of teaching, a bit more uh, exegetical type stuff, which is looking at Bible passages and having a Bible is really handy because you can sit there and work out whether I'm telling you the truth or not. OK. And uh, I'd love it if you could go, if you've got a Bible, if you could go to John chapter 18. Verse 28. I'll show you a couple of verses. You can scan around. Uh, It's always good to have your Bible too. My dad always taught me if you go to church and the preacher's really boring, just start reading your Bible, all right? Don't waste your time. Start reading your Bible. So if you think this is going nowhere today, just start reading it, all right? You can do better than hearing from me anyway, so uh, you can have a read of it. Hopefully you do hear God through me. So let's get into it. You know the first cause of uh, someone missing redemption? The first man of the Jews. All right, check this out. John 18 verse 28, then they, and we know from Matthew 27, 1, that it's the chief priests and the elders, so these are the Jews, led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. So what we've actually got here is we've got, they've decided that they want to get Jesus killed, all right? So what what we've got is the process by which they uh, persuade the Romans to kill Jesus. It was early morning. And check this out they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the passover check out the incredible irony here all right you've got this jewish rule saying you can't go into a gentile's house before the passover otherwise you'll be unclean you know the passover in the old testament was uh, the last plague of the israelites of the egyptians i should say and god said to the people said kill a lamb and put its blood on the doorposts And then when the angel of death comes through, you won't lose your firstborn males, all right? This is phenomenal irony here because all of that from Egypt all the way along through history all pointed to the ultimate Passover lamb that was going to be slain, which was Jesus, all right? So no surprises as to when Jesus was killed. He was killed at Passover, all right, at Easter time. Don't you think this is incredibly weird? Here's a Jew saying... We don't want to go into that house when they've got the Passover lamb right in front of them. It's like, I don't want to go in there because I'm going to get unclean from it, but we'll send the Passover lamb in and get that sorted out. That is incredibly weird. But this is the, this is the nature of religious people, right? Jesus said about the religious people in Matthew 23, He said, you blind guides straining out a gnat, a little insect, and swallowing a whole camel. And religion has a way of doing that. It has a way of making you strain out really, really tiny things and missing the big things. So what I wanted to do today is uh, give you a few uh, principles of uh, how you can tell you're actually starting to become religious. All right? Because last week we talked about, or um, well, I talked about, and you listen. We, I talked about it and you listened, hopefully, uh, about self-justification and uh, how there was a lot of hypocrisy in the, uh, in the Jewish people. So today, I'll give you some nuts and bolts about how you can actually tell that you're starting to get religious. I mentioned this last week, that people with good backgrounds and disciplined personalities are at high risk of becoming religious. I talked about a girl that I spoke with at school one time who was a foster child, had a really messed up background, and she sat there and she'd kept her nose pretty clean for the last six months and then she said to me, she said, oh, I just can't do it anymore. I'm just too tired. I can't keep it up. And it was just a classic example of where if you've got a really difficult background, you're actually, the amount of time that you can maintain the, the good appearance shortens. All right? But if you've got a good background or you come from a good uh, Christian background or even a background where people don't like Jesus but they're highly disciplined and it's very stable you actually set yourself up for being in a place where you could become religious really easy because religion mostly is just about discipline it's about being in control of yourself and how you act so we need to be careful I talked a little bit about this last week also that there's an innate mechanism inside of humans where we don't like being on the wrong side of the line all right? we want to be on the right side of the law So we instinctively find ways to do this by actions, and that's when you're actually starting to get a little bit of religion starting to weave itself in. You see, what was actually needed for the Jews is they needed a heart change. That's what they needed, all right? And the truth is, in a lot of churches, um, I've got a saying that I use at school a lot of the time. I think in any cultural group, actually, a dead fish doesn't have to do anything to go with the flow, All right? And to actually push in the other direction and in a heart sense push toward Jesus and want to know Jesus and interact with Jesus is far different and significantly different to actually just floating along and going with the flow. Here we go. You can tell you're starting to become religious if you're focusing mainly on externals. What they and others do on the outside that makes them better or more favoured by God. All right. So if you look at people's external actions all the time in their behaviours and you're looking at your own external actions and behaviours and you're making judgement calls about whether that person's a good person or whether you're a good person or not based on your external behaviours you're on the road to becoming religious you may have already started what about this one religious people make up rules that are not in the Bible here's a good thought can you biblically ground every criticism you have of other people can you? Like, I mean, honestly, what comes out of our mouths is often far less than what's going on in our hearts or in our heads. But often, I mean, I do it. You sit there and you look at what other people are doing and you start making judgment calls about whether they're doing the right thing or not. Now, the question is, maybe you might be able to ground some of those biblically, but there's probably a fair shot that most of us can't ground a lot of the criticisms that we have in our heads about other people. And we're mainly looking at people's external rather than actually looking at the internal and, the, and at the heart. It's almost like this saying, if I can stop doing this and start doing this, then God will love me more. You see, it's, it's a phenomenal thing. In the last week I've been talking to students at school about this. People are on this phenomenal performance treadmill. And I may have talked about this last Sunday morning, but you'd just be absolutely stunned at how much this is just part of And it's no excuse, but you'd be stunned at how much this is part of our DNA almost, as fallen human beings, is grace in a sense is so incredibly foreign to us and treadmill performance is really natural to us. But treadmill performance is religion and grace is Jesus. That's what it is. So I had this, pardon me for telling these stories about students, but man, there's been some, Really unreal God stuff happening in my conversations with students. This student came up to me we We're literally walking across that path on Friday and she said this to me. She said, Mr. Sondi, I need to come and talk to you because uh, I'm having some doubts. I said, yeah, okay, well, what are you having doubts about? She said, I don't actually have any doubts that God's real. I know that he's real, but she said all this stuff about God forgiving us and giving us grace, she said it's just too much like a fairy tale. I can't believe it. Now, you know, you know what I said to her? I'm not going to rip into her about having doubts. I said, you know what? I think maybe you have a better understanding of it than most other people who think they do. Because I think when you understand God's grace, his goodness toward us, you, you, you can't get it. And she, I'm not even making this up. She said to me, you know what? She said, you know what sounds fair to me? is me having to work really hard to be good enough. I don't see how me just getting forgiven... That, that's just like a fairy tale. It doesn't even seem real to me. And so I said, well, I think you're starting to understand. She goes, no, you don't get it. You don't get me. Like, it's really a problem for me. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, well, it probably is. But I think you probably understand it better than a lot of other people. you know." And there's been times in my life where I have really had quite deep and disturbing doubts about God. And then I come back to God. And honestly, I look at myself and I look at other Christians around the place and I just think, I mean, if we really believe this, we'd act a whole lot differently to what we do. The truths that we have in the Bible, I mean, I said to Diff about a week ago, I'd love to just come up here and not even preach one Sunday and just read stuff out of the Bible for like 40 minutes. Because the stuff that's in the Bible is phenomenal. And the promises that God's made to you and to me and the stuff about his character is incredible. And the weird thing is, if I did that, there'd probably be a proportion of us that are just going to go, oh... Okay, it's just the Bible. It's just the Bible. It's just grace. (laughs) This is for people who like doing the performance thing. It's good. And the weird thing is, whenever you start talking about this, uh, there's always going to be some of you and there's always going to be me. Probably most of us are going to sit here and go, yeah, I can really think about someone who needs to hear this. And if you've already thought that, you're probably religious, all right? Because that's what religious people do. They sit in church and they go, oh, man, God, I'm fasting for the rest of this service for the person three rows in front of me because they really need to hear this, all right? Well, no, you, you really need to hear it, all right? Because Jesus doesn't want you just to go around and running on the performance treadmill. He wants to give you himself. He is truth, and when you interact with the Bible, you interact with Him, and He will change your life in a way that you can't even begin to imagine. A couple more pointers. Religious people tend toward either pride or despair. This is really critical. I was talking with someone at the end of the service last week about this. When you get on the performance treadmill and you hit the mark, you get proud. Because you hit it. And guess whose energy you used to get there? Your own. But when you don't, well, what have you got left? Despair. And it's an interesting thing. It's, it's a mechanism that I've noticed in my own life um, over the last little while since I've uh, heard about this stuff to do with uh, tending toward pride or despair when you're on the performance treadmill. And I can see the mechanism in my own life. Big time. When I do well, if I've uh, done it with myself in the centre and not Christ in the centre, I go, woohoo, everyone have a look at Peter. And you find nice little subtle ways. I find nice little subtle ways to just market myself to other people. All right? But when you don't, you're just going, oh, jeez, can someone just find a big rock and drop it on me? All right? Because i fail, failed and a whole bunch of people have seen me fail. And so I'm tending from pride to despair and I'm switching from one to the other all the time. And Jesus is kind of going, I don't want you to be in pride or despair. I want you to be in grace and I want you to communicate with me and talk to me and, and be uh, seeing my revelation in your own life and being changed by me. Oh, this has been another, one, another good one for me. So basically this morning's me fessing up all my sin and you guys hopefully learn something from my failures. failures. That's where we're going here you have more than one mediator. See, 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says this, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. So a mediator is you've got two people that are at war with each other or they're arguing with each other. They can't come to any kind of peaceful settlement of it. And so what happens is you bring a third party in and they help the two parties to come to some kind of peaceful settlement. So the two parties Jesus uh, or the Paul's talking about here in Timothy is God and us. And we're at war, and Romans says that, that we're actually enemies of God. And I actually think we probably have the capability in us, if the Jews didn't kill Jesus and he came now, it could, I probably would have done it, all right? If he got up my nose enough, which he could well have, all right, I probably could have killed him, and maybe most of us as humans, that's the nature of pride, is that we actually want to be in the centre, and when someone comes along who is the centre, we don't want him. And the only way for us to stay in the centre when someone comes along who is the centre is to kill him, all right? So what we've got is we've got God, us, enemies, mediator, Jesus. And Paul's saying in Timothy, he says, there's only one mediator that brings peace between the two parties, and that's Jesus. All right? Well, let me tell you what I did for years. And I think this is a really easy thing to do. And if you do this, uh, you're becoming religious, or maybe you are religious. Here it is. I have always been really big on having disciplined quiet times. All right, which is just really sitting down, reading the Bible and praying. You've got to do it every day. All right, But you know what slipped into my thinking in spending that time with God is I actually started to think that that brought peace between me and God. And if I had those times, he wasn't going to get me in the rest of the day. And so instead of Jesus being my mediator, the uh, discipline came in and it was actually my mediator in between me and God and I thought that it was bringing peace between God and I. And I'm not saying I still do regular times with God, you know, right? And it's important to do that. You need to do it. You need to spend regular times with God. You need to dedicate time to him, not because it's going to mediate between you and him and bring peace between you and him. He wants to change you. He wants his word to wash over you. He wants to make you more human than you've ever been. That's what he wants to do. He wants to redeem you. He wants to help you. And how's he going to help you if you don't sit down and let him talk to you through the Bible? And you talk to him and pray to him. So you need to do that. It's really important. But, and this is the, the subtlety of it. You just need to be careful that your disciplines haven't become something that actually brings peace between you and God. And you go and you do something and you go, yeah, Christians are meant to do that. And that's a good discipline to do. But on the inside you're going, I think God will be happy with me. I think he's more happy with me right now because I've just done that. Or, oh, I didn't do that. I think he's angry with me right now. There's a couple of questions I've been asking in my pastoral care um, interactions with students in the last week and they're really helpful questions I think. One of them is this, students come in and they tell me that they've got a bit of an issue going on in their life and my first question is this. Obviously I asked, sorry, my first question getting to the, the core of it is this one, I ask a few questions to understand it and then I ask them this, I say, can you just tell me in your situation, where's God at the moment? What's he doing? Is he doing anything? And the interesting thing about it, I had this student that came in and they, they, uh, they really had some really, hard, they were just in a tough spot. And uh, they were really honest with me and they said, he's not anywhere and he's not doing anything. I said, really? I mean, that's the high fields fog. You know, high fields, we get this fog all the time, you know, and you get down off the range and it's clear as a bell. we've got people who live work at the school who live down at Murphy's Creek and they come up, they go, I don't know what the heck's going on up here, but we've got a fog going on. You get down there, it's clear. I said, Okay, let's get outside of the fog. Because God says in the Bible says in John chapter six that God is always at work. The other thing he says is Romans eight twenty eight that he works all things together for good that love him, who are called according to his purposes. So they're good questions to ask. What's God doing? What's He up to? What's What's He? Where is He? Because in, in a really hard time, you can't see Him. He's not there. You just can't see out of the fog. But He's there. He's working. The other one, I ask, as a, I've asked this week as a follow-up, is I say, I said to these a couple of students, I said, "What do you think God's attitude is to you right now? How do you think He feels about you?" And this one student, he said, God's not anywhere. He's not anywhere in my situation. He's doing nothing. She said to me, she said, uh, He's angry with me. I said, Does he love you? She goes, No, he doesn't love me. He's waiting for me to love him first. All right? And you know what's interesting about that is that is the way a lot of us operate on a natural level. We just we get in that discipline kind of religious thing and we're just kind of going, I've got to make the first move. And so I asked this girl, I said, uh, when you first became a Christian, when you first started loving Jesus, who loved first? She goes, well, Jesus did. I said, why has that changed? It hasn't changed. He still loves first. (laughs) Now, he does want to change. He doesn't want you to stay the same. But he loves first. And if you're someone who just gets it in your head, you're just going to, always thinking the whole time, I've got to pacify God, I've got to do the things that are right, I've got to work hard, I've got to get on the treadmill so that he'll love me you're probably not operating in grace and that's a difficult, awkward and painful place and very tiring place to operate one mediator not our actions, not our disciplines what about this one Uh, you have a false dichotomy between good and evil, the good people are like you and the bad people are not This is really instinctive for me. I I mean, you go around and you just think, seriously, if all of you guys would be like me, the world would be pretty sweet. Alright? And you're all laughing because you're going, no, I wouldn't. We've seen you. Alright? It wouldn't be sweet. But it's this weird, and we don't ever tell anyone else because you know that that's a bit, you know, know, uncouth to actually come out and say that. But underneath, we do, don't we? A lot of us, maybe. I do. Alright? I'll put my hands up. There you go. You go around and you're just kind of thinking, really? You should have done it my way. See? You're in that hell right now because you didn't do it my way. Alright? Come over here and just take ten minutes of your time to learn from my wisdom. You know? Come and be a dry sponge and your life will never be the same again. Alright? And it's true. It won't ever be the same again. It'll probably go really badly. Alright? See, the truth is, uh, It's it's not like I'm good and everyone else is evil and everyone else has got to become like me. It's like all of us have been corrupted, all of us are messed, and all of us need Jesus to get us on his track to actually bring full redemption and restoration to us. You see, the Bible says uh, what's critical is not that you're a good person. The Bible says what's critical is whether you repent or not. See, everyone needs to repent. And repent just means to confess your sins and turn around and head in the other direction. That's the call from the Bible. The Bible would say the one criteria for people is not whether they're good or bad, but whether they repent or not, because everyone needs to. And as Luther said in his 95 Theses, uh, the first point on his 95 Theses that he stapled to the Wittenberg door, he said, all of life should be one of repentance. So it should be happening all the time. Have you ever done something wrong and felt the compulsion to do a few good deeds to balance up the ledger? I have. I wonder if you have. If you have, you're into religion. All right? That's not how grace works. It's not how God's goodness and kindness towards you works. He doesn't say, do a few good deeds and that'll make, it, make up for the other thing. And this is probably the most uh, predominant view in uh, secular Australia, I would think, about God. Is it's really just like some kind of balancing scales thing and I've done a whole bunch of bad things that are weighing this end of the scales down and I've just got to be a little bit better and that'll kind of balance it up. Alright? And Jesus kind of made it pretty clear and God makes it pretty clear in the Bible, you got anything on the bad side and you're done. Doesn't matter how much stuff you got on the good side, it always weighs heavier than the, the bad stuff always weighs heavier than the good stuff. All right, we're almost there with the religion. What about when you are disobedient, uh, you don't forgive yourself until you've suffered enough? This is a good one. I'm pretty good at this one, you know. This is like kind of chucking a pity party and no one comes to it but yourself, all right? (laughs) And then you just get even more pitiful because no one's coming to my party, you know, and you're going around telling everyone how bad you are and how terrible you are, all right? And there's this weird mechanism that can start to take place sometimes when you've done something wrong where you're just kind of going, oh, you know, I've... I've done something really bad, but if I whip myself, if I beat myself up enough, somehow I'm going to get to a place where I deserve God to forgive me because I've suffered enough. It's not, that's religion. That's what that is. And that's why the grace of Jesus, his goodness toward us, and his gifts of forgiveness and restoration and redemption are so unbelievable. Because you don't have to do that. I mean, Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was whipped, pierced, beaten up, almost beyond recognition, so that we could get healing. We don't get anything. Don't do the religion thing. And the means to the end have become the end in themselves. Bible reading, study, obedience, serving. This is an easy one in uh, religious people, is that they actually, something that is a means to an end actually becomes the point of it. All right, so reading your Bible and praying, all of a sudden I've got to read my Bible and pray so God will like me, as opposed to the end is Jesus and I go through, it's almost like a pair of sunglasses, I've got to go through Bible reading and prayer to actually get God and for God to change me. And that tends to be what religious people do, is they make the uh, means the end in themselves. I'm just going to show you this, no I'm not, it goes for about four minutes so I'm going to skip it. So we can get through. Cause cause number two for roadblocks to redemption, don't mess up my life. Check this out. This is Pilate. So Pilate said to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? See, what actually happens here with Pilate, uh, we've had the interaction with the Jews and the religion got in the way. But with Pilate, Jesus comes in and Pilate starts asking questions and Jesus asks questions back. It's a really frustrating conversation. Have you ever been in a conversation where you're asking someone questions and they keep turning it around and asking you a question? This is like Joe Bjelke-Peterson. I think this is like his famous kind of thing. You know, the reporters would ask a question. He'd ask them a question. You just go, hang on, I started. You're not allowed to do that, all right? But this is what Jesus does. He does this to Pilate. He says, he asks him a really personal question. He's going, are you saying this or has someone else said this? And... One thing you might notice about Jesus is he has a way of making things personal all the time, doesn't he? He doesn't want you to get out into the general, vague kind of state, all right? He makes it personal all the time. I remember talking to uh, a young fellow a few years ago, and he was effectively living an atheist lifestyle. And I said to him, you know, all the actions that you're taking and the way that you're behaving... You know what it says to God? It says to God that he's a liar. And what he says in the Bible, you can't trust. So he promises good things and rewards. And he says, look, follow me, be like me, and it's going to be the best for you. And it's going to bring glory to me. Just focus on being like me. It's going to be better. Trust me. And he was going effectively in his life. He's going, no, you're wrong. It's not going to be the best. And... What you actually realise, and hopefully you do realise this, and I've realised this in my own life, is every single time you're disobedient to God, it's because you actually think he's not telling the truth to you. All right, now Psalm says that uh, in in your presence there is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now either God's telling the truth, and that's actually the case, or he's lying. All right? And when you sin and when you're disobedient to God, what you're really saying is, I don't trust you and I don't believe you and I don't think you're telling me the truth. And he says, okay, I don't want you to gossip about this person. And then you do, you're really saying, I don't trust you. You told me that the best thing for me is to be in your presence and, and to follow you and to do what you asked me to do, but I think you're lying. Now, we don't actually say that, but that's, that's kind of the mechanism that's going on. So I said to this young guy, I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell God that you think he's a liar. Tell him. He wouldn't do it. Which was weird because he was doing it. By his whole lifestyle, he was telling God that he, he thought God was a liar. And this is what Jesus is doing a little bit with uh, Pilate here, is he's making it really personal. Not just leaving, off in vague, leaving it off there in vague land, but he's bringing it down to really, really personal. And Pilate said to Jesus, so you are a king. Jesus answered, frustrating conversation, you say that I'm a king. (laughs) For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? See, Pilate had worked a long, long time to get the favor of Caesar. And you get the sense here, like Jesus is making it personal. Pilate's taken off his shoes, so to speak, and he's just dipped his big toe in the water, hasn't he? That's what he's done. He's just going, what is truth anyway? And you actually s- start to realise, if you read a little bit more around about this uh, scenario between Pilate and Jesus, that Pilate actually probably is persuaded that Jesus is innocent. You see this in John 19, 12. It says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. All right? So there's actually something that's connected to Pilate's heart. Um, and he can see something in Jesus that's a little bit different, probably, to what he expected to see. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. All right? That's really significant for someone who's worked really hard to become Caesar's friend. Because you get lots of perks with that. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So now Pilate's got a problem. If he's going to go with Jesus, if he's going to release Jesus, and if he's going to back Jesus, he's probably going to be in trouble with Caesar. And you don't want to be in trouble with Caesar. So what does he do? He goes with the people, doesn't he? That's what he does. So, allow me to ask another couple of questions of you. When it comes down to... uh, Decision time where it's either Jesus or you, who prevails? See, we actually spend a whole lot of our lives building up our kingdoms, in inverted commas. So if it comes to the point where Jesus says, are you going to follow me and sacrifice everything that you've worked for, because it might come to that, or are you going to keep what you've gained and bank on that rather than banking on me, who will it be? This is ultimately the call that may God makes of everyone, that Jesus makes of everyone. And you notice where Pilate actually ends with Jesus, he says, what is truth anyway? And you know, this is one of the things that uh, can happen to us, is uh, there can be stuff about God that we're happy being confused about. Let me uh, give you a little illustration of this. One of my favourite authors is uh, John Piper. And uh, he wrote, and I've read most of John Piper's stuff, right I love his stuff it's a real blessing, anyway, so he writes this book on fasting on food fasting right and of course man i'm I'm the piper guy you know like i'm I'm into it you know it's it's probably a really bad thing to say, but I kind of have jokingly said if God ever got sick, I'd be happy with John Piper to take over for the day, all right but he's never going to get sick, so that won't ever happen. But you get what I'm saying, so I'm going, to, I've, got to buy, I've got to buy Piper. I've got to buy the book, all right? So I buy the book, and when I'm not even making this up, I buy it, and I put it on my shelf, and I left it on my shelf, all right? Because I didn't want to fast. <laughs> True story, all right? Didn't want to fast, right? And it was like, in my head, there was just this thing like, nah, see... Fasting could just be like this Old Testament kind of deal. Like it's not for us and I'm not really sure about it. So if I'm not sure about it and I'm confused about it, I don't have to do anything about it. That's honestly what I thought. So the book goes on the shelf and it stays on there. I think I'd had it on there for about 18 months. I'm not even joking. It was just sitting on the shelf for 18 months. You go, what a waste of money. Yes. What an idiot. Yes. (laughs) All right. And then eventually I've just gone, oh, I've got to read it, all right? Not because it's John Piper, but because there was that thing right in the back of me going, I bet you he's going to have a really good biblical reason why we should fast food. And it was like it just gnawed on me, gnawed on me. I ended up reading it, and I've been fasting since, all right? Not the whole time since, but (laughs) different times. And you know this, I reckon this can happen sometimes. We can be a little bit like Pilate, where we're just kind of going, I think you're onto something, and there can be, we can have this inkling inside of us that God actually wants us to explore something and to investigate something, but we know it's going to ask something of us that we don't want to give, so we're at home with being confused about it. You know what I'm talking about? We are. We get really at home with being confused about it. And this can come out in uh, the, the scriptures that you actually quote from the Bible. Just evaluate in your own mind right now, what are the typical scriptures that you read all the time? What are the ones that you quote all the time? What are the ones that you think about all the time? What are the ones that you don't want to read? Like you don't read them. Because it might indicate that you've set up little zones in your life that you want want God to act in, and you actually don't want him to go outside those zones. Because the truth is, probably for most of us, We've got razor wire zones in our lives. And we say to Jesus, "Right, man, don't you go near that fence because it's electrified <laughs> and there's razor wire on the top and you're going to get ripped to shreds. And it's this whole section of your life where you know that God actually wants to do something and bring some redemption in, but you put up a big fence, you've put 40,000 volts through it and you put razor wire on the top and you're saying, God, look, you can have this 95% of my life, but I'm not giving you the five. You're not having it. And, of course, what does he want to do? He's going, yeah, I know I've got the 95, but I want that 5, and I'm coming for it. He's going, I'll put 80,000 volts through it. All right? It's going to hurt you, man. He's going, no, it's going to hurt you. Because he's more patient, and he's stronger than us, and he'll, he'll last the distance, and he'll grind you down. All right? Not because he's mean and cruel, but because the best thing for you and the best thing for his glory is that he grinds you down, and you give him the last 5%. He'll make it happen. He can last longer than you, right? But the crazy thing about us is a lot of the time we just kind of go, nah, I'm just going to, I can last, I can hold him out. Just go, don't, don't do it. Don't do it. He'll do some sweet stuff with your life if you don't do it. I'm going to skip that. The last one's this. We've got the uh, religious people. Their roadblock was religion. We've got Pilate. His roadblock was uh, Comfort. And uh, his own kingdom Cause three, number three roadblock is Jesus is my janitor. All right? And this is Barabbas. John 18.40, now Barabbas was a robber. In Mark 15.7 it says, and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. So you got this situation where uh, Barabbas and Jesus get brought out as a custom that someone gets freed. They said, who do you want? Do you want Jesus, the guy that never did anything wrong, or do you want the guy that's killed people? We'll have the guy that killed people, all right? So what actually happens here is uh, Barabbas is over here, and all of a sudden Jesus becomes Barabbas' get-out-of-jail-free card, doesn't he? And for Barabbas, at some level, Jesus was his janitor. He was the one that cleans up his messes. He'd made a whole bunch of messes, and uh, Jesus came around, and he's just the janitor with the mop behind him and the and the broom, Females are going, you don't broom like that. Shows you I don't do much housework at home, but how's that now? am I going? Sweeping up messes. Barabbas, this is from Bruce Milne, he said, Barabbas continues to represent an alluring alternative, the fulfilling of this worldly ambitions and dreams, the gratification of human lusts and hungers, the nationalist dream and the political kingdom. Are you like Barabbas? Are you driven by passions which have had negative consequences? These are the kind of people, um, and I think probably, and this is not something to justify the place that you find yourselves in, but I think probably at some part in your journey toward Christ, for a lot of us, there's this uh, sense, there's this period of time or this season where you work out that Jesus comes to clean up your mess and maybe you've uh, backslidden a little bit and uh, Jesus comes along every time you're guilty And you feel a bit dirty and you ask him for forgiveness and he cleans you up. But he's not really the boss. He's just the guy that makes you feel better when you've trashed yourself and corrupted yourself. And uh, Jesus is not interested in being your janitor. Does he clean up the mess? Absolutely, he does clean up the mess. Will he forgive you? Yes. Does he want you to confess your sins to him? Yes. Is the fact that you feel guilty after you've done something bad a good thing that God wants to engage with? Yes, to all of those things. But he's not interested in just being your janitor. He wants to be boss. He wants to be central. He wants to be boss cocky. All right? Not the lackey. And the the problem is... It's probably an instinct in a lot of us where you just kind of go, yeah, it'd be good to have Jesus along because I think he's another addition, kind of like a Hindu God that can come and help me out of some tight places in my life. But he's not interested in doing that primarily. One thing I heard from Tim Keller a little while ago is he said every uh, person um, subconsciously has got rules about how other people will get to know them. It's just how it works. So if someone comes up to you and they've decided they want to get to know you a certain way and you've decided, I don't want someone to be rude like that or I don't want them to talk like that or I don't want them to treat me like that, you'll put up the walls and you won't let them know you. And this is exactly what Jesus does. All right? He's got a very narrow door through which he says, this is the way that you actually get to know me and you don't get to know me by me becoming your janitor and just cleaning up all your messes so that you can keep going and doing what you want to keep doing. Jesus doesn't want to be the guy that just gets you out of trouble. That's not what he's interested in doing. He will get you out of trouble, but he doesn't want to be the guy predominantly that does that. See, Romans 6 says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Jesus doesn't want to be your janitor. And you know what he does? If you make him your Lord and you put him in the centre, he sticks a janitor's hat on every now and then, doesn't he? I mean, that's a big part of what he does. But he's got the, he's got janitor boss on the same hat, all right? and he's a good boss. So we'll get in, because the truth is all of us, myself included, we've all got mess that needs to be cleaned up. We just do. And Jesus wants to come in and do that, but he does it with a boss kind of vibe, not just a janitor kind of vibe. Alright, I'm going to read you two stories. All the females here should be gone. See, I told you the males are bad. Alright, because there are some sweet stories about some women in the Bible that found redemption. Mark 5. If you've got a Bible, you can go to it. Mark 5. This is the sanctified Bible. That's how I'm reading from this one. Mark 5, verse 25 to 34. I read uh, halfway through uh, verse 24. And a great crowd followed Jesus and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. Now You, you can go back into Leviticus if you want and you can find the scripture that says this lady's unclean. And anyone that touches this lady is going to get unclean. And she doesn't get to go to the holy places and she doesn't get to do the funky things because she's been bleeding for 12 years. And probably not many people would want to touch her because she's got this problem. She's desperately in need of redemption at a physical level, desperately. And in fact, so desperate that she spent all the money that she had trying to find someone who could redeem her body and to make her body fresh again. So what does she do? She does something very, very controversial for an unclean woman. She heard the reports about Jesus, verse 27, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment for well, she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. This lady had an intense need, didn't she? Intense need. And she underestimated, I read this this week, she underestimated Jesus' generosity, didn't she? It's like, I'm in the crowd and I'm getting down. And it's almost, I mean, you almost get the vibe like, there's two people there, but there's a gap about 100 millimetres wide. And she thinks, if I can just get my hand through there and just touch his uh, his garment, I might get healed. I might. It's, it's like, don't you get the sense like there's no other hope left for this lady. She has no other hope and she's sick of being on the outer and she's sick of being unclean and she, Jesus is it. i have got nothing left. I've just got Jesus. Sticks it through. Sticks her hands through. touches the garment. Immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said, You're crazy, man. There's lots of people touching you. But he said, No, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And be healed of your disease. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that just a totally different picture to the the Jews and the Pilate and Barabbas? None of those guys had that kind of vibe. None of those had that kind of vibe where they're just going, really? Uh, He might not even like me for this, but I know that he's my only hope right now. Because I've tried every other hope that I had. Barabbas is not doing that. He's going, woohoo, I'm out. I can get into it. This is my get out of jail free card. Let's kill some more dudes. Maybe. Pilate's going, ah, there was something there. But no, I don't want to have my life upset. This lady, I've got nothing, I've got no other hope. Let me read you another one. I'm just going to read you a little intro to this. So just look at Luke 7. Imagine you're at a dinner party. The host is a respectable church leader and local councilman who lives in a big house on the posh side of town. Tonight, the dinner party is in honour of a visiting speaker. You're glad to have been invited because there's been a lot of talk about this man. He's been causing something of a stir with his radical views. Some people won't have anything to do with him. But you've got an open mind. It's good to have an opportunity to find out what he's really like. You hear the doorbell but think nothing of it until a woman pushes her way into the room. You see the despairing face of the host's wife. This new arrival is wearing a tight-fitting, low-cut blouse a skirt that's way too short, and stiletto shoes. She's painted up to the nines and totters slightly as she walks. She's probably had one drink too many. She looks like the sort of woman who stands on street corners. She goes straight to the visiting speaker and throws her arms around him, clasping his head to her bosom. I'll always be yours, you hear her mumble. She begins to massage his shoulders. It's then that you notice she's crying, her mascara streaking down her cheeks. Everyone in the room seems to freeze. What a thing for a respectable person to have to endure. You feel for him. How embarrassing. But instead of pushing her away, he reaches up and puts his arms around her. He says something to her that sounds like, and you're mine. But he can't have said that. It's obvious what kind of woman she is. He can surely see that for himself. He ought to show some discernment. She might think it's a come on. Maybe it is. Maybe he's one of her customers. This visiting speaker clearly has big problems. Let's go to Luke 7. 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, look out and here comes a religious scene." If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. She gets redeemed. This is Matthew chapter 5. How well off, Jesus says, are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How well off are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How well off are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. How well off are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be satisfied. I would have loved to have read another story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, but you know, these women were well off, weren't they? At the end. Because they were bankrupt. They knew they had nothing to offer Jesus and that he had everything to offer them. And that is a really, really solid place to stand, isn't it? Not religion. Not trying to defend my own kingdom—that'll be anxiety-inducing. Not using Jesus as a janitor, but coming to Jesus and saying, "Jesus, you have everything, and I have nothing." Jesus, uh, we just need your help with this because uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, stuff that seems to just come by natural instinct in our in our flesh, in the side of us that needs redemption just comes naturally, the religion stuff, the wanting to build their own kingdom and defend it. And you just want to do something so much more than that. You want to make us to shine like the sun. So God, I pray that you'd help us to let go of the performance treadmill. Let go of our own kingdoms. Let go of our passions. And the things that we know aren't right things that we know enslave us and destroy us. I pray that you'd help all of us to do that. I pray that you'd make us more alive as a church as you do that. Amen.